If you uh, have a Bible, please open up to Ezra 3. And I could use a glass of water up here. This Oh, I have a glass. Thank you, ushers. So Ezra chapter 3, if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, you'll find that on page 336. We're going to be looking at verses 7 to 13 this morning. Ezra chapter 3, starting in verse 7. What do we do when we are experiencing a lot less than what God has promised us. Maybe you read in the book of Romans, chapter 5, how God has assured us that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom God has given us. And you think, why don't I experience more of that? Or maybe you have been praying for years for the desire of your heart, and God has made it known to you in various ways that he's going to answer that prayer, but you've been waiting and waiting, and God hasn't done it yet. Or maybe you read in the book of Acts about the vibrancy of the early church, how they were so full of the Holy Spirit, how they uh, loved being, thank you, being together, and um, they, they cared so warmly and so generously for one another, and they passionately and, and boldly shared the good news about Jesus. And you think, oh, why isn't my church experience more, than, more like that? Or maybe you read in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, how we can do all things through him who gives us strength. And yet there's that sin or there's that habit that you're, you're stuck in in your own life, and no matter what you try or, or how much you pray, you can't seem to get free. Or maybe you read about John the Baptist and Jesus and the apostles and how under their ministry that the masses turned back to God and you read stories of, of revival since that have happened even in our own country in past centuries and you're praying for God to do something like that again for him to send revival and you think, why isn't God answering this prayer? What do we do when we're experiencing a lot less than what God has promised? Well, today's passage tells the story of a people very much in that situation. To understand the passage, I, I want to go back and tell the story of how God's people got to this point. As far back as Abraham, God's people had been chosen. They'd been set apart. They'd been loved and delighted in by God, called to, to bear God's name in the earth, to show the world what God was like, to bring God's blessings to all the nations. But they'd failed, not so much because God proved unable or unfaithful, but because the people had been unfaithful to God again and again and again. This becomes clear in the biblical story by the time of Moses, that when through uh, or though God brought God's people out of Egypt with a mighty arm, a mighty hand, an outstretched arm, God punished the Egyptians, God was graciously merciful to his people, the Israelites. And yet, what did they do? They grumbled in the desert. They rebelled against God's leadership. They worshiped a golden calf. They asked to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. When God finally did, 40 years later, bring them into the promised land, a land they hadn't earned and didn't deserve, they quickly turned from God there to follow other gods of the nations around them. 
And so time and again, God would raise up during that period the Philistines or the Midianites or some other people to oppress them. And then they would cry out to God and, and God would raise up a leader, a judge to save them. And so then they would serve God as long as that leader lived. But then when the leader died, they would go back to their wicked ways. And this happened again and again. Then finally, God gave them a king, first Saul, then David, and then Solomon. And even these kings, great heroes of the faith, though they were, were mixed bags. David was an adulterer and a murderer and a failure as a father. Solomon's heart was led astray by his many wives and their false gods. And by the time Solomon's son took the throne, Israel once again had turned wholeheartedly away from God to follow other gods. And so God raised up prophet after prophet to call them back to himself, pleading with them generation after generation, century after century. But the people just went from bad to worse. Not only did they turn their hearts from the true God, their God, to serve other gods, but they also increasingly oppressed one another. They sold their own countrymen as slaves. They rigged the financial system so that the powerful got richer and the poor got poorer no matter how hard they worked. Eventually, God had had enough. God finally disciplined his people after hundreds of years of, of second chances and third and fourth and one hundredth chances. God finally let the consequences of his people's behavior fall on them. He finally gave them over to all the punishments that he'd originally warned them they would receive if they broke his law. God sent his people back into captivity, back into exile. He allowed the nation of Babylon to cart them off to destroy their land, their city, and their temple. But only for a short time. After hundreds of years of unfaithfulness, God would let this period of punishment go on for only 70 years. God foretold through the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah that after 70 years, God would lead his people on a new exodus back out of their slavery, back into the land that he'd given them. There they would be planted in God's land again. God's temple would be, be rebuilt and his king, a son of David, would be restated to the throne. More than that, the prophets foretold God would establish through this king, God's Messiah, a glorious kingdom which would spread over the whole earth. God would pour out his spirit on his people, giving them new hearts that would cause them to delight in him. The exiles would stream back from all over the world, bringing the wealth of the nations with them. And so Jerusalem would be glorified to be the crown jewel of the earth to God's great glory. And all the nations would stream to it to learn the ways of God and God's glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And all this would begin, Isaiah foretold, when a Persian king named Cyrus overthrew the empire of Babylon. We read in the opening chapter of Ezra, the book we're looking at this month, that right on schedule, Cyrus came to power and granted the Jews to return home and to rebuild their temple. Yet, very few of them were actually interested in going home. You see, life had grown comfortable for them there in exile in Babylon. They, they had roots there now. They had businesses and farms and families and communities. It, it was hard to, to think about giving these things up, to go back to a, long, a land that if you were young, you didn't know. And if you were old, you knew it wasn't anywhere as good as it had been so long ago when you had been there. 
No, going back would be pioneer work. It would be costly. It would be painful. It would be hard. Let someone else do it. And so most of the people chose to stay, to, to pursue prosperity and comfort in the midst of, of the pagan empire and their gods. But a few returned, a, a remnant would, would, uh, who would be willing to, to carry out God's work, who would put the concerns of God above their own, who would give themselves to the task, however hard it was, of, of relighting the lamp of, of the one true God of all the earth where it years before had gone out in Jerusalem. Their first task was to rebuild God's temple. This was the place of God's presence. Sure, God is the God of all the earth, so big, so powerful that, that not even the heavens can contain him. Sure, he was with them in exile, but, but for our sake, God had chosen to dwell in a house made by human hands so that his people would know that he's among them, so that people had a place to go, a place to, to meet with God, to offer him sacrifices, to celebrate his goodness. Rebuilding this temple was the first order of business when God's people got home, as we read in the book of Ezra. God had, had moved Cyrus's heart to, to order that his temple be rebuilt, and God put it in the hearts of this small remnant of God's people to carry out the task. And so now it's time to begin. And last Sunday we saw in the first half of Ezra 3 how they rebuilt the altar. And they began the daily sacrifices that Moses had prescribed. And now in today's passage, they begin working on the temple proper. And they go about it with an eye to restoring the glorious temple that Solomon had built and the worship that went on there. That marvelous structure of, of fine timber and stone and expert craftsmanship that was all gilded with gold had been one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a place of majesty, a place of, of celebration and pageantry when, where, where God, uh, people met with God, where they celebrated God, where they experienced the awe of how great God was. And now, like Solomon had done, the, the people they send to, to Tyre and to Sidon to have cedar logs from Lebanon floated down the coast to be used in the construction. And like Solomon had done, they wait to the second month of the year and they begin work in the second month. And like Solomon had done, they appoint the Levites 20 years and older to carry on the task. And like Solomon, when they were done, they, they celebrate with, with trumpets and with cymbals by praising the Lord according to the directions of King David. Like Solomon, they celebrate with the words of Psalm 118, He is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people shout a great shout. And yet, truth be told, these Jews building their temple was in many ways nothing like Solomon building his. Unlike Solomon, this temple here was not being built by God's king, but it was being built under the orders of a far-off pagan emperor who had allowed a ragtag bunch of captives to return home and take on this task, but he wasn't there to help them make sure it got done. And unlike Solomon, who built his entire magnificent temple in seven years, these captives don't actually get more than the foundation of the temple built. And so unlike Solomon, who when he had completed his temple, had the priests bring the ark of God into the temple, the ark represented God's very presence, 
And God honored the temple by causing the glory of God's presence to fill Solomon's temple in the magnificent cloud. But here in Ezra, though the people are celebrating, there's only a bare foundation of a temple. There's no ark. There's no sign of God's glory cloud. And finally, unlike Solomon's time when everyone had praised and rejoiced when the temple was completed, here in Ezra, half the worshipers are weeping and wailing. Why are they crying? Well, the text only tells us it's because the older ones had seen Solomon's temple. Perhaps they were underwhelmed at the, the measly comparison of this new one, just a foundation, not as large, probably not as well built, no ark, no glory, just some stones. Or perhaps they were weeping from, from the built-up grief of the past 70 years as they remembered back to the time before all the tragedy when Solomon's temple had stood in all of its former glory. And since then, they had been through so much. They had lost so much. They had died to so much. Perhaps they were weeping because of all they had lost between then and now and all they had endured. Whatever the case, this celebration at the completion of the temple's new foundation is in some ways like Solomon's, but in other ways, it's nothing like it. And so half the people rejoice and celebrate, and the other half weep and wail. So what do we do when we are experiencing a lot less than what God has promised? Do we rejoice and, and be grateful for what God has done, what God has given us? Do we count our blessings and name them one by one? Or do we weep and lament in holy discontent because God had promised us so much more? Were the, were the young people right to celebrate wildly how, how, how far God had brought them and, and all God had done for them? They were home again from a foreign land. They were standing in Jerusalem, God's holy city. From God's altar was wafting the smell of, of sacrifices going up to the one true God of the earth. Before them was the foundation of the temple that would be. Around them were the priests and Levites again in their holy robes. In their ears were the sounds of the Psalms giving praise to their God. Or were the old people right? That, that, that somehow this was all nothing like what God had done in the past. It fell so far short from what the prophets had promised them. Which perspective is right? Well, to answer that question, we're going to have to look at the rest of the story and see how it plays out in the rest of the book of Ezra and continuing on into the book of Nehemiah, which continues the story. About 20 years after the passage we're looking at today, we find in Ezra 6 that the rest of the temple finally gets rebuilt and there was much rejoicing. Then the story jumps another 55 years to the story of Ezra in chapter 7. In another move of God, another Persian king, King Artaxerxes, sends Ezra back to Jerusalem to teach God's people the law of God. Ezra comes with another group of returning exiles, as well as with riches and wealth that the Persian king and the people of Judah, who were still in exile, had offered to God for his temple in Jerusalem. When Ezra arrives, he leads the people in a moral reform. They had been intermarrying with the surrounding peoples who worshipped other gods. But under the ministry of Ezra, the people repent and they turn back to God. Then 
In the book of Nehemiah, we learn that in another move of God, 13 years later, God moves King Artaxerxes not only to give up his trusted head of security, Nehemiah, but also to allow Nehemiah to fortify Jerusalem by rebuilding its walls. Now, this is an amazing turn of events when you realize that this would put the Jews in a military position to rebel against their Persian overlords. But the Persian emperor grants Nehemiah with Persian military support and royal funds the right to return to Jerusalem and supervise the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And the walls were rebuilt in record speed. Then Ezra leads or reads the law again and, and leads the people in another moral reform. They promise not to take foreign wives, not to break God's Sabbath, not to fail to pay God's tithes and offerings, and they recommit themselves to living faithfully for God. By the end of the story, there's much to rejoice about. God's people are back in God's land. God's house is rebuilt. God's city, Jerusalem, has been rebuilt, at least the walls. In fact, in, in Nehemiah 12, not just the temple, but the whole city of Jerusalem is consecrated and set apart as God's holy dwelling. And God's people have pledged to be faithful to God, to live under God's law, and to honor God as their God. As the prophets had foretold, both people and riches have come from the nations back to Jerusalem. It looks as though God's people can be a light and a blessing to the nations again. God has been faithful to keep his promises. And so the young people in our story, as the temple foundations were being laid, were right to rejoice. And yet there's another perspective on this story which we need to consider as well. Back in Ezra 4, as soon as the foundations of the temple were finished, work would grind to a halt. Ezra tells us this was from opposition from surrounding peoples, but the prophet Haggai adds that God's people also neglected God's house because they were more concerned with providing nice houses for themselves. And so it wasn't until prophets like Haggai and Zechariah rebuked and, and stirred up the people that they got back to work. And it took them some 20 years after they'd begun it to actually get the temple completed. So fine, now they had a temple, but when Ezra comes some 55 years after the temple was completed, he's reduced to weeping and, and to fasting and to tearing his cloak and to pulling his hair because both the people and even the priests and the Levites who were to serve in the temple had defiled and disqualified themselves from service by intermarrying with pagan peoples. And, and this was a big enough deal, a grievous enough situation that the book of Ezra ends with a list of all the priests and Levites who had sinned in this way. How would you like to have your name on that list in the Bible? A real hall of shame. Well, then Nehemiah comes onto the scene. In, in Nehemiah 1, almost 100 years after our passage this morning, Nehemiah learns that the people in Jerusalem are still in great distress. They're being oppressed by the surrounding peoples, and the walls of Jerusalem, of course, are in ruins. But even more importantly, when Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, he finds that the people's morals are in ruins too, just as Ezra had found. Nehemiah has to rebuke the wealthy and the powerful because they're preying on the poverty of their poor countrymen. They're charging them exorbitant interest, and, and when the people can't pay, they're enslaving their children and seizing their homes and fields for themselves. They're making a buck while they're forcing their fellow Jews into grinding poverty and enslavement. Thankfully, Nehemiah is able to correct this wickedness, even as he's trying to get the walls built, 
But it isn't long before the people's sin bubbles to the surface again. When Ezra reads the law in Nehemiah 9, all the people weep. And why do they weep? Because they're breaking God's Sabbath. They're still marrying pagan wives. They're neglecting God's house. They're looking out for themselves, but they're failing to share their wealth with God. Well, thankfully, they repent at the preaching of Ezra, and they turn from these ways at that time. However, no sooner is the wall finished and dedicated that we read these problems crop up yet again. It seems the people's propensity to sin just won't go away no matter how many times Ezra and Nehemiah reform the people. It's one thing to rebuild a temple or a wall, but how do you reform human hearts? In fact, this is where the story ends in Nehemiah 13, with Nehemiah still trying to deal with the people's continued sins. And in fact, this is where the story of the Old Testament closes. So it seems... Back in our passage in Ezra 3, the old people were right to weep. Despite what God had done, the results were so far short of what the people had hoped for, so far short of what God had promised through the prophets. So to answer our original question, what do we do when we're experiencing a lot less than what God has promised us? Let me give you three answers, which I see from the story of Ezra. First, what do we do? We worship God. We, we get in God's presence like they did in the, our passage, and we pour out our hearts to God. And here's the thing. It doesn't really matter if we worship by rejoicing and celebrating or if we worship by grieving and weeping. Both are appropriate. There's plenty to weep about as well as plenty already to rejoice in. So take your pick. But let me suggest that you try the one that doesn't come naturally to you. Some of us are always optimistic, right? We're glass half full people. Um, We may benefit from weeping, from stopping to lament how much things still fall short from God's best and from what God has promised us. Others of us tend toward the pessimistic. We're glass half empty people. And we would benefit from counting our blessings, from from stopping to realize how much God has already done. So second answer to our passage, when we're experiencing a lot less than what God has promised, we have to realize that more often than not, the reason has to do with sin. Maybe it's our sin, maybe it's someone else's. We see repeatedly in Ezra and Nehemiah, it was the stubborn, ongoing sin of God's people which was constantly cropping up and eventually it had the last word in the story. The author of these books doesn't come out and say it, but but I think the implication of the way they tell the story is this. Do you want to know why that generation didn't experience all that God had promised them? while they never really overcame the sins that had originally sent their parents and grandparents into exile. So what are we to do about about the sins today in our own lives? Well, we should do what Ezra and Nehemiah do repeatedly in the story. They humble themselves. They they mourn over their sins and, and the sins of the people. They confess them, and then they lead the people in turning away from their sins and doing what's right. Repentance and confession are are so critical. Though in our story, they weren't enough, right? 
Because what's to keep us from going right back into the sins we earlier confessed? And so that leads to the third answer to what we do when we're experiencing less than what God has promised. And that is that we look to the king that God promised to send to bring fulfillment to all of his promises. Now, you won't find this in Ezra or Nehemiah, but their story sets us up for it. Because when the book of Nehemiah ends, and, and with it the story of the Old Testament closes, God's promises are in many ways yet to be fulfilled. The, the people, even in Jerusalem, are still captives under foreign domination. Ezra says it in Ezra 9.9. We are still slaves in bondage, he says, even as they're standing in Jerusalem with the temple built. God had promised them a new exodus, a, a glorious kingdom under the rule of a Messiah from the line of David. God had promised that the exiles would, would stream back, bringing the wealth of the nations, that Jerusalem would be glorified and that the knowledge of God would go out to all the nations under the kingdom of the Messiah. But when the Old Testament ends, the people are still struggling on in their sins. And, and none of these promises are more than partially fulfilled. But we know the rest of the story, right? We know that in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus Christ to be his Messiah King, to lead God's people finally on a new exodus, completely out of their slavery, to take away our sins once and for all, to pour out God's spirit, to give us new hearts which desire to please God, to bring the scattered exiles back to God, and in fact, to bring all peoples to a knowledge of God throughout the earth. And to build a new temple and a new city, not made with stones, but with human stones, so that God would come and dwell among his people. As the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 2.10, all God's promises are yes in Christ. Some are yes because God has already fulfilled them in Christ. Some are yes because God is fulfilling them in Christ as we walk with Christ in faith day by day, year by year, now in the present. And some of them are yes because we know that Christ is coming back. And when he does, the fulfillment of all these promises will be completed. So what do we do when we're experiencing a lot less than what God has promised us? Well, we take time afresh to get to know Jesus, the Messiah King, better. To realize just how much God has done for us in him and to serve him as our king.